was not a subject that was on anybody's mind until I brought it up at my announcement. We need to build a wall. A man you can bait with a tweet is not a man we can trust with nuclear weapons. But what we want to do is to replenish the Social Security Trust Fund by making sure... Hey, it's Mariah, and this is the Millennial Search for Meaning. I know it's been a while since our last episode, but the interim for me has been full of figuring out how to logistically make this work. Turns out this is a lot more time consuming than I anticipated. So I took the summer off from podcasting to live my life and think about how I really wanted to frame this project and how to find the time to do it. Then, guess what? I was able to spend two full months this fall working on a new season. Every Friday until mid-December, we'll be putting out a new episode. And we're just in time to talk about the elections. Just FYI, this podcast does contain adult themes and language. First, let me just say that in this episode, more than others, I'm really playing the role of the clueless millennial. To be honest, this has been an extremely difficult episode to produce, mostly because I wiffle-waffled between wanting to be objective and realizing just how hard that would be. As it turns out, politics are a huge topic. (laughs) Duh. And one that is extremely personal. I don't have the resources to present to you a fact-checked, accurate portrayal of how millennials really feel about politics. But I do have my trusty own perspective. So I hope you'll listen with full knowledge of the circumstances in mind. The three chapters contained in this episode illustrate my own personal search to find more meaning in a political system from which I, as a 25-year-old woman, had been starting to feel disconnected. Part one, Bernie. Historically, I've been a person who cares about politics. I'm not a community organizer or an activist necessarily, but I'm an educated voter. I try to stay informed and think critically about the information presented to me. And I know that I'm lucky to have the voting rights that I do have. Still, if someone asked me to describe my relationship with politics last spring, I would probably have said something like, Vaguely interested. I know that's a weird way to describe my feelings about something that has the ultimate power over my lifestyle and opportunities. But with the insane amounts of money, the tabloid-level gossip, and the lack of any real conversation between candidates from different parties, the elections had me feeling a little alienated. With you deleting 39,000 emails, again, you should be ashamed of yourself. What you did, and this is after getting a subpoena from the United States Congress. We have to move if on. Secretary Clinton, you can respond, and then we got to move on. We, we want to give the audience the a, sector, a, a chance here. In jail, let alone after getting a subpoena from the United States Secretary Congress. Clinton, you can respond, then we have to move on to an audience question. Look, it's just not true, and so please you, oh, go you didn't to, delete them? Allow her to respond, please. Those personal emails, not oh, official. 33,000? Yeah, right. Well, we turned over 35,000, so oh, yeah. it was. Even back then, I still couldn't have predicted the total shit show the elections of 2016 were about to become. But first, let's go back to that time of innocence. 
May of 2016, when Bernie Sanders came through my little town of Missoula, Montana. Missoula only holds about 70,000 residents, and despite not being very well advertised, the event was packed, drawing thousands. My friend Shelby and I cut the line and elbowed our way to the front of the crowd, like true Americans. Why are you here at the Bernie rally today? Because I support Bernie Sanders' social justice movement. Love that he marched with MLK, and it seems like he's there for the common good instead of for the 1%. Like, I'm Native, and, you know, like, what's important to me is that relationship. He says that he, no student should live in debt, and no family who works full-time jobs should live in poverty. So that kind of speaks to every man, and especially the millennials, because our future is really bleak if we go to college. And if we don't go to college, then it's always going to be a struggle. Yeah, part of the new generation. New generation. We know that Bernie's out to support us, and he wants what we want for our future, for us and generations to come. <laughs> Anything else you want to say? Yeah, go Bernie, fuck Trump. Because I'm not a total fool, I was, of course, following the elections, despite my own frustration. And as a liberal, I was definitely excited about some of the things that Bernie talked about. But he still seemed like a nebulous political figure. I hadn't personally felt the energy. Standing in the crowd, though, it really did seem like there was something there with us. A feeling. American democracy. It is about creating a nation in which we have one of the highest levels of voter turnout, not one of the lowest. It is about empowering the American people so that they know that democracy is not a spectator sport. It is a process in which every person here, if he or she exercises their power, we are all Listening to Bernie's speech was sort of like listening to Santa Claus tell you that, yes, he would of course be able to bring you a pet unicorn this year, if you're good. But could he possibly be real? A candidate who seems to speak through that invisible barrier, who wants to tell us that creating change in the political system is possible. Um, so I just want to go over a few points. The first one is pertaining Around to Around this that, time, uh, I did an interview with down, Andrew Grandall. A friend of a friend from Boston who created a YouTube video called Dear Baby Boomers, Why Bernie Matters. Among other things, the video talks about why it's important to be hopeful about policies and candidates that we believe in, even if they seem too good to be true. The reason why I made that video specifically was because of, um, I had gotten coffee with my dad a couple of days earlier. And my dad is a super informed, really progressive guy um, and a very compassionate guy. Um, and he's, we were talking and he's just like, you know, Bernie's great, but I just don't think he's electable on the federal level. I don't think he's, you know, this and that and all these kind of doubts and how we just have to settle for Hillary, right? And it's like, dude, what is your deal, you know? And we kind of, we didn't get an argument, but I was like kind of really exacerbated just trying to convince him of all these things over and over again. And it's just, you know, and it's almost... Right, it's almost like talking to someone that's depressed, you know what I mean, <laughs> if you've had experience with that, and it's just like, yeah, but, you know, you have all these things going for you, and it's so beautiful outside, and let's just go take a walk, and so it's like, no, 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 none of that, no, 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 and I, and I get where that's coming from, but 
you know, what, what happens in our own individual lives when we say no to everything? And we, you know, nothing happens. And you, and you atrophy and you die. You know, nothing good happens. Yeah. So it is important to be idealistic and maybe a little bit romantic about the situation because that's how big changes happen and that's how you start movements. Like, there is a lot of criticism um, towards millennials about not being politically engaged enough. A lot of it does come from this, like, disillusionment um, mm-hmm. that you were yeah, kind of right. speaking to earlier. It just feels like we don't have as much faith in the political system because we've just kind of seen Why it. Why should we? Yeah, like, we've just seen it um, yeah. sort of just be an institution that protects people who are, you know, te- protects people who are privileged and doesn't really look out for people who aren't privileged. Yeah, and that's scary. And, and you're right about the kind of disillusionment and, you know, the disenchantment that our generation frankly, rightfully feels about the political process. That said, if you look at what's happened since Obama's been in office, um, you know, and again, people don't kind of look at the the details of the actual political proceedings that have occurred, but, you know, the Republicans in the House and in the Congress have done every single thing they can possibly do to get in the way of Obama achieving anything. We forget, you know, we take Obamacare for granted, excuse me, the Affordable Care Act, I should call it, you know, that was a miracle that that got through, you know, and they're still trying to repeal it. Like, 40 or 50 times they've tried to repeal it in Congress. So, you know, when Bernie talks about a political revolution, he's not talking about himself getting elected to office specifically. He's talking about kind of what you mentioned, that millennials need to come out every two years and vote. We need to get, we need to kick these jerks out of, out of uh, the House and out of the Senate and get people in there that actually represent us. We also need to push stuff like, you know, removing uh, superdelegates or removing gerrymandering. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of stuff that has to go. So Bernie's not talking about just himself. He's talking about a process that will take years, you know, and it's taken us years to get in this mess, so it makes sense it'll take us a few years to start to get out of it, which I'm fine with. By the time Bernie came to Montana, it was early May. Montana is a late primary state, and at this stage in the game, it was already fairly unlikely that he'd be able to win the primaries. Still, we thought, maybe if we just all turn up at the polls, maybe if we just hold strong together. Up until then, I hadn't ever submitted a ballot in person. I'd only ever voted absentee. But with all the newfound political energy, I wanted to see what the experience of voting was really like. As I parked my car, I was greeted by a friendly mob of petitioners. They weren't pushy at all and answered all of my questions cheerfully. Inside, a happy-seeming lady helped me update my registration address. Another lady shuttled me over to a table, handed me a pen and a ballot, and sent me into one of those red, white, and blue booths. And when I dropped my sealed ballot into the box, grabbed a sticker, and walked back down the long hallway, I realized I was grinning. In the parking lot, the petitioners waved at me and cheered. It felt like I was winning a race just by showing up. Part two, I win. When, in July, it became 100% clear that there was no way Bernie was getting the nomination, 
I was admittedly a little bummed out. But I can't say I was surprised or really that bitter, to be honest. Thinking back to that uplifting feeling I'd had while standing in the crowd with the Bernie supporters, it seemed like this was a beginning, not an end. For questions about local politics, I turned to my friend, Eileen Inman. My name is Eileen <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce Inman. Inman. Inman, okay. Yeah. Inman. Eileen Inman. I guess and I agree to She's 27, a Missoula native, and has a political engagement record that dates back to childhood. I mean, when... I was thinking about it in retrospect, especially since thinking about doing this podcast with you and doing this interview with you. It's, it's kind of funny because in retrospect, I remember running to my mom all the time. And first time, I, there was, we used to have a JB's restaurant here in town when I was five years old. And they took dino fries off the menu, like dino cut french fries. And I was livid absolutely beside myself and so I told my mom and she told me to write a letter and I wrote it on hot pink like fluorescent pink paper just demanding and asking and pleading with them to to get these chicken nuggets back or dino nuggets or whatever they were and within two weeks they actually got back on the menu and that first feeling of actually doing something I mean I know that like it's it was something so silly and didn't really make a huge difference but it did in my life and I felt like I was helping the other kids that also wanted the Dino Cut fries. And, and it was just so validating to actually do, take like 10 minutes to write out a letter and send it in and then actually have change come from that. And then seeing my mom. The list goes on. In fourth grade, Eileen organized a sit-in to protest the removal of recess. At her high school, she helped organize a peaceful protest against the anti-memorial policy that prevented her and her peers from collectively recognizing the deaths of some beloved classmates. Then, after spending some time in San Francisco for the first part of college, Eileen moved back to Missoula and started to get connected to political organizing in a more real way. Uh, I got this internship, and Ford Montana completely changed, like, all, all of my life, really, because, like, yes, I was absolutely engaged. I, by the time I graduated high school, I'd lobbied for one thing or another. I'd written all the letters. I'd, I'd helped my mom write grants. I'd volunteered for all these different organizations, and I was really engaged. But it, was, it, it wasn't necessarily something that was youth-driven and youth-centered. Yeah. And Ford Montana completely just blew that out of the water. It was crazy. If you were to explain Ford Montana to someone who doesn't know what it is, like how would you describe it? It's a nonprofit all about engaging and activating and educating the next generation of pro- progressive leaders, and and not just like not just trying to make them into cogs for some machine or or anything like that, but actually being able to empower them and whatever they want to do. I mean, we've, we've had leaders that came through that, like, maybe were knocking all for school boards that, that semester, but then they actually really like the environment, or they really like education kind of stuff, or they like Native American his stuff, mm-hmm. rights, and, yeah. <laughs> and different kind of things. And so we'll, we'll empower all of them. We'll just give them the, the skill set to be able to educate themselves and know, like, who to go to and who to talk to. I absolutely can't leave out the conception story of Forward Montana. Eileen told me that it all started back in 2004, 
when a group of Gen Xers in their early 20s were sitting at the bar talking about how sick and tired they were of being called the apathetic generation. Sound familiar? The conversation sparked an idea. They knew of a local 501c4 called Forward Montana. The organization claimed to be moving the state forward, but was actually involved in some pretty shady lobbying. So the group of apathetic Gen Xers did a little digging and realized that the name Forward Montana was up for registration. They quickly filed some paperwork and found themselves the new legal owners of the name, despite the previous organization's attempts to scare them off with a cease and desist letter. So what started out as a prankish rebellion quickly evolved into what it is today, an organization that works alongside sister organizations with similar missions across the country to tap into the power and energy of young citizens in our state. When you try to get young people active in politics, it's not about making them, making them care, it's about making the issue sexy and it's about making the issue accessible accessible so that they can understand it and that they can get it and they can feel it in their soul. Sexy so that they want to. And going out and like, when I say that, like, take the non-discrimination ordinance, for example. That, overall talking about that, it seems like a pretty common sense if you're at least slightly progressive that we would need this. But we, we found that it was because people had no idea that that wasn't already a thing, or people had no idea that it needed to be a thing. They hadn't heard the stories, they didn't know what was happening. And so for Montana, got all of our volunteers together to dress up in rainbow tracksuits, and we were the, the koala, a koala squad. And uh, we would go out and just collect stories from people. And we ended up collecting over 1,200 different stories from community people, and then stacking all of those into the city council chambers and they were in session from 7 p.m. the night before until 6 o'clock in the morning till 2 I think hearing testimony and we had people from the Bitterroot coming in and all of our volunteers and all the people that we had activated and told like yeah no this could actually happen all you have to do is show up and and take part and show that it's important and it's necessary and put a put a face to the movement and the need. In 2014, Eileen decided to get a little more involved in the political work she was doing. She decided to make a bid for city council. Especially I wanted to go in and, and give a voice to the less well-off and the impoverished population here in town because I grew up well below the poverty line, well below. Like, like I, think, I think there was one year my mom raised a family with three kids on about $6,000 of gross annual income. Yeah, and somehow made it work, right? Right, aka my mom's a hero. But in in all my experience, that the poor voice wasn't really spoken about, and it kept being a population or perspective that kept being shoved under the rug for one reason or another, or it was just say that it was it was a consequence of something else that happened, and so. Okay, so how what was that experience like? It was insane. It was so much work. So basically, I was also working at uh, Ford, Montana, and I was a part-time student. From 8 to 10 in the morning, I'd cut my own turf. Luckily, there's apps now on your phone that you can... So instead of actually, like, taking all of the clipboards and all that stuff out, you can just use your smartphone to do it. Yeah. And that that was incredible, because then I got to talk to all of these... 
I got to hear some incredible stories, slash some really sad stories, and I got to meet really cool people going just on the doors even. Like, that was by far my favorite part. I remember there was, there's an intersection of houses. There was one woman in particular who lived right behind, like, shared an alley with the Colonial. And she was just telling me about some of the, some of the things that she would just have to live with, like waking up and going outside and seeing some transient folks uh, mid-coitus in her backyard, or her stuff being stolen all the time, or hearing different domestic disputes that eventually like came up onto her lawn and just broke all of her stuff and different things and she wouldn't be able to do anything about it because when the police came then they wouldn't be able to do anything about it. She talked about her friend that had, um, she was, she was mentally handicapped in some way, but she would say that she was paying $700 for a tiny one room studio that wasn't air conditioned, that had leaks everywhere, had black mold, there was meth users on either side of them that that would keep her up all night slash like try and break into her place to try and steal her stuff and sell it that she kept trying to complain about there's a herd of feral cats that live in the in the attic of the building and <laughs> right right she was very was like, adamant about the feral would, cats like i can't leave that out <laughs> that honestly would be pretty disconcerting and every time that she would go and complain to her landlord then her landlord would um intimidate her into not calling the cops and not complaining and saying that she like just just using the fact that she was mentally handicapped against her and not taking her seriously and making her live in squalor in the end, Island ended up pulling out of the city council race early. Her immediate family was going through some stuff, and more and more, she felt like she was overlooking their needs in favor of the race. After working so hard to get her degree while holding down a job and running for office all at once, she needed a break. But she learned a lot and plans to continue working in the political field. I would absolutely implore more young people to do it. Like, I don't know. I do know some awesome young candidates that have either ran and won or that I totally absolutely believe in or just even if they they might not make the best candidate the first time around just the experience was so fulfilling and I and I thought that because I had so much Mm -hmm. political experience that like yeah being a candidate is different but how different can it be extremely different it is exponentially more trying on your brain and just pulls you in so many ways and then and then you get to have that that personal connection with thousands of people on the doors like I have so many little anecdotes from different people I met on the doors funny ones tragic ones like great empowered ones like some really cool people all over but that have all lived lives and then being able to actually look back at all of them be like yes I want to represent you I'm going to be here for you oh it's incredible everyone should do it if, if that's what they're into Looking for another idea. I'm not 
Part 3, Kirsten. And it didn't take me any time. Okay, yeah. Uh, my name's Kirsten Gerbach, and I agreed to this interview. It's good. Glad <laughs> I got that out of the way. Consent is good. <laughs> And I work as a regional field organizer for the Montana uh, State Democratic Party. Um, I'd love to hear your take on the election, the presidential oh my election. God. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, just starting with a general question, then have some more specific questions too. But so, as someone who is a sexual assault survivor, like, what has it been like to watch someone who is like a sexual predator run for president? Oh my gosh, it's like a fucking nightmare. And the the thing that blows my mind is the fact that only recently people explicitly identified Trump as a sexual predator, but we knew that all along. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know why this is just coming out now, but um, no, I mean, it's even from like pre all these, ta- you know, the tapes coming out. I mean, when Hillary got the nomination, and she's going against Donald Trump. The accusations and the claims about like women running for office are just, um, yeah, it's not explicitly about sexual assault, but it's about being a woman with some like with a a voice, aka like the most powerful office <laughs> yeah. in the land, right? Mm-hmm. And then doubting her, you know, ability and credibility every step of the way. Yeah. And, like, I'm sure you have found yourself in this position, but when you are the female voice in the room, you could say the, you could say the best thing there. You know, you could provide the best um, thought, or the, the provide the leadership or the decision-making. Like, no one's really going to listen to you unless a dude repeats it. So fast forward to about a month ago. We're going along. We're heading into fall. And we're about to have an election. And then we get this. Totally changed her look. She's your girl's hot as shit. In the purple. Whoa. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> yes, the Donald Escort. Whoa. <laughs> oh, my man. Wait, wait, you got to look at me when you get out of your life. That is very you give me the thumbs up? Look at you. You are a piece. You got to put the thumbs up. You got to <laughs> okay. get the thumbs up. Can't be too happy. Can we show first? Yeah, let me. It's very funny. You got to give me the thumbs up. All right, you and I will walk there. Oh, my God. Maybe it's a different one. Better not be the publicist. No, it's, it's her. It's yeah, that's her, with the gold. I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. Uh, you know, those legs, all I can see is the legs. No, it looks good. Come on, Shorty. Oh, nice legs, huh? Oof, get out of the way, huh? That's good legs. Go ahead. It's always good if you don't fall out of the bus. Like Ford, Gerald Ford, remember? <laughs> Down below. Pull the hell. Oh, 
Hello. How are you? Hi. Trump, how nice are you? seeing you. Terrific. Nice to meet you. Terrific. You know Billy Bush? Hello. How are you? Nice to see you. How are you doing, Ariane? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Are you ready to be a soap star? We're ready. Let's go. Make right. me a soap star. How about a little hug for the Donald? You just got off the bus. Like a little okay, hug, absolutely. <laughs> Melania said this was okay. I just got off the bus. Bushy, bushy. There we go. Excellent. Well, you've got a nice co star here. Good. Yes. After all this stuff came out about Trump, the internet exploded with women telling their personal experiences of being sexually assaulted or intimidated. It was the first time I've ever felt really, truly saddened and frustrated during a campaign. Not just empathetic, but really sad. This one hit close to home. Like most women, I have also experienced sexual aggression. I've been put in uncomfortable positions and even had people force themselves on me after I said no. These are situations that are clearly not okay by society's standards. But for every one of these situations, I've experienced countless microaggressions in the workplace, in public, at school. And I've talked to countless other women who've experienced the same thing on a daily basis. There's always that little voice in your head. Are you talking to me differently because I'm a woman? Are you placing me in secondary roles because I'm a Do woman? Do you care about what I'm saying or are you just trying to sleep with me? If I try to have a conversation about this, will it hurt my career? Is my outfit too much or not enough? If a billionaire grabbed my ass in a crowded room, I'd like to think that I'd immediately say something about it or sucker punch him or send an angry mob after him. But probably I'd think, what a jerk and move on with my night. There's a quick cost-benefit analysis formula that every woman is familiar with. Is this worth the fight, or should I just ignore it? On a scale from microaggression to rape, things get confusing when you're constantly wondering if you should speak up or not, especially when the cost to you is so high. But rape culture is the direct result of locker room talk like what was captured on tape. And I'd say if there was ever a time to speak up, it's now. Part of my, my career goals is to be uh, like political staffer working on policy in the White House. I would love to do that for a few years. Um, but all, most of those positions are white men still. Kirsten is a political organizer who discovered a love of politics while working as a Food Corps volunteer a few years back. In that position, she found efficacy in developing an understanding of the policy that governed school lunches. As a teen rape survivor and as a woman with aspirations to continue a career working in government and politics, I wanted to learn more about how her experience getting involved has affected her view of the system. This isn't a big secret or anything, but for me it was a big wake-up call because, you know, in my teenage years, early 20s, applying for a job, I was like, all right, you have a kick-ass cover letter, a tight resume, you know, maybe you get a couple of references from teachers or people you've worked with who think you're top-notch and you apply for a job and you can get that job. Um, you, know, you win some, you lose some, but in the end, it's, like, it's a fair uh, process of your potential employer looking at all these pieces of you. Um, and this is, I mean, people could, could make the same claim around all job opportunities, but it's really about who you know. I, except I think it, I felt it a lot stronger when I started to get more involved in, in political work, where truly relationships are everything. Okay, for example, um, I'll give him a different name. We'll call him, we'll call him Todd. Also did food core, <laughs> wonderful white guy, comes from a super privileged New England home, uh, recently graduated from Yale Law School, top law school in the country, 
and uh, he got in with uh, connections to other people, like relationships, people who, and, and I mean, Todd is totally, I'm sure he was qualified for, the, for going to Yale Law, and now he's, I think he's a presidential management fellow, which is a very prestigious fellowship, mm-hmm. but um, within the White House. And, you know, I'm sure he's, he is very qualified, but I know for a fact through direct conversations with him, it was all these people who were willing to um, informally, casually refer him as a good choice. And all of those people have voices with weight to them because they are also higher up people of privilege who are well entrenched in the New England uh, political and academic elite. And that's what distances an average person from feeling connected or having access to not just work within the political sphere, but, but any sort of voice. Mm-hmm. Because if it's just the inner circles reinforcing each other, like how do you break in? I can't claim to know what it's like to be a minority. I'm white, and I grew up in a middle-class, rural environment with little diversity. Like many of us, I also grew up learning about how the U.S. abolished slavery, fought for freedom from religious persecution, and prides itself on protecting the underdog. As I got older, I started to pick up on the facts. Our country is still trying to understand things like prejudice and racism. There's still a power dynamic at play. But it wasn't until this election that I got a real taste of what it must feel like to wonder if the country really has your back. I I definitely feel like I was, I victimized myself and silenced myself a lot more before finding my my own voice and in in the sense of just um i don't know maybe maybe you can relate to this or i don't know but um like in a in a relationship often i would like defer to the guy mm-hmm. like but i considered myself like a really uh like a strong independent woman right or like sexually be like oh yeah whatever like whatever the guy wants to do right in high school, it's just really easy to be like, ah, oh, I'll just let you go. Or even in college, in I went to a small school with all conference style, you know, small group classes. And even though, you know, again, I consider myself a very outspoken person, I'm very opinionated, and I let people know, like, in those settings, I found myself being like, oh, I'll just, you know, let the big boys talk about that and just, you know, write my notes over here, or, you know, have my internal monologue over, over here. Um, when I decided to get involved in the, the sexual assault reform, you know, kind of movement on my college campus, I, um, I almost said no because I was just in such a vulnerable emotional place myself where I was working through, I was going to a sexual assault support group off campus, I was going to counseling off campus, and I was struggling to, to, to stay in school and keep up with my work and still be doing that personal work. And then, you know, a f- friend of a friend is like, hey, like, I know you're in Nellie's sexual assault group, and you're like, I'm not, you know, it's supposed to be confidential, I'm sorry, I know that kind of thing, but like, would you be willing to get together with our group, like, help form this committee? Um, mm-hmm. And I was just like, I don't know if I have the emotional energy to do that. And 
you know, it's it wasn't an instant moment, but I think through the process of um, of coming to terms, being really honest with myself about sexual assault and figuring out who I really want to be. But I, I find myself now like way more comfortable with just being a person instead of being like a woman in relation to other like men or male energy or male relationships. You know, and I think it's always a tug of war with um, owning power or feeling somewhat powerful within your broader like political structure is when you're advocating for something and you realize, you know, the like, for example, the school administration, are they going to listen or are they not going to listen? And like, how do you make your voice heard? It's been years since that moment. It's been six, six or so years since since that uh, we we did successfully reform the sexual assault policy on campus but um, it was it didn't happen overnight I go I go back and forth there's a constant tension of feeling utterly powerless and still holding on to the hope and riding the highs of you know when you do have a success when you do change someone's life when you are able to make a concrete change being like we got this sometimes You don't even realize that you have something to say until someone tries to silence you. But every big win is a result of a lot of people showing up because no one else is going to do it for them. Our country's problems weren't solved when women got the right to vote, or when we abolished slavery, or when we wrote the Constitution. Even as we celebrate the anniversaries of our victories and the activists who created the history of equal rights we're so proud of, we still have to make decisions every day about who we are. The hardest, the hardest part about engaging younger people or ga- engaging dis- disillusioned people, say like, yeah, like come on, get in, like stand up for something, get involved. Um, you know, whether it's signing a petition or doing community organizing event, or you know, for some people, it's just voting. Like I talk to a lot of people who generationally have never voted in their families and they have never voted. And I do, I do just want to shake those people. Like say, like, what is wrong with you? This is the one thing that you can do. And generations of, pe- of people in this work have tried to make voting so accessible to every person. And yet I... I don't shake them and I don't yell at them um, because I don't want to. I don't want to judge anyone for where they personally come from for feeling so disenfranchised. Um, but it, uh, yeah, that's the one. Like the one. If you have a vote, and you know, it's a little piece of little piece of power, and it does. It does matter. In order of appearance, you heard from Andrew Grandall, Eileen Inman, and Kirsten Gerbach. 
At the Bernie rally, I talked to Chris Essman, Marisa Phillips, Juanita Tallman, and Patrick Yoder. Music was provided by Partygoers Electricana, The Genies, and Jazar. Our theme music was produced by Emmett Orr. Special thanks to David Noble, Charlotte Nickel, and everyone who continues to encourage this labor of love. Or, at least, humor me. Next week, a very different sort of story about waves and fear. <laughs>